Hello and welcome to No Direction's official PaizoCon 2019 seminar coverage in partnership with Paizo. Our coverage would not be possible without the help of our con staff, Paizo, and our patrons. Find more seminar recordings at nodirectionpodcast.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another uh, panel here at PaizoCon 2019. Uh, in this panel, we're going to be talking about the uh, philosophy uh, behind uh, Pathfinder 2nd Edition, how the roles came out the way they did, why we're doing things the way we're doing them, and what it means for the future of the game. I'm uh, the Director of Game Design. I'm Jason Bullman. Uh, so hi there, everybody. Uh, and with me, I have the rest of the design team. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Mark Seifter. I'm a designer on Pathfinder at Paizo. I'm Logan Bonner. I am also a designer on uh, Pathfinder at Paizo. I am Stephen Reddy McFarland, uh, senior designer on Pathfinder at Paizo. So uh, what you have here is the team that was responsible for um, most of the rules decisions behind the game. Of course, we have an entire company filled with uh, smart cookies that helped us out in a lot of different ways. But we did the lion's share of uh, tinkering with these rules. Well, plus all of you. Yeah, <laughs> plus, plus all yeah. of you. Everyone who helped playtest this game really did help shape it and turn it into the game uh, that it is today. I, I or rather, like, will be on August 1st when it releases. I feel like at least 10 to 20% of decisions, at least... Was yeah was, no it's true was, especially was, was, we were like we're uh, not sure what but what did they say especially in the transition from the from the playtest to the final so you know when you approach a project of this size right you you don't just you don't just dive right into it you 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 kind of can tinker around the edges and stuff but before you really get moving you really have to decide what direction are you taking this what's what's the goal what's the What's the, what's the finish line look like? And, and how do you get there? So, you know, I, I think that process started really by us analyzing what first edition was. How was it working? How was it not working? What which, things weren't functioning quite the way we wanted and which ones we absolutely had to make sure to keep? With almost 20 years of data to, yeah, right. to help out. And again, all of you guys were the ones providing that data. You were on our message boards. You were coming to talk to us at conventions with a short question or a long anecdote. We were playing games with you, organized play games just together, games with our own groups. And that's where we got all of this data. We saw what worked. We saw what made Pathfinder special. But we also saw what were the weaknesses, what was sort of a struggle in Pathfinder and what we thought we could we could make better. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of that was was once you started looking for patterns, they were pretty easy to find, right? Um, there were elements in the game that just weren't quite doing what we wanted them to do. There were aspects of the math formula. Everybody always complains, oh, high-level play is so broken and so slow. And a lot of that has to do with the math formula and the underpinnings behind the game. How different formulas scale up over time was really causing problems at high levels. Now, characters are smart. Uh, players are smart. They would look at their character, identify their weaknesses, and find ways to patch them, to shore them up. Well, that, that makes perfect sense. And for all of you who played that way, it was like, yeah, of course. Well, that's just the way you play it. But what you were actually doing is jumping through all these hoops to patch problems in what was basically just a math formula that was a little wonky at high levels. So, you know, identifying problems like that, identifying the fact that whenever anybody had to learn this game, they kind of needed a mentor to sit there and walk them through it because there was so much complexity front-loaded. You had to learn so much before you could even start rolling yeah, dice. Yeah, that, that barrier to entry where yeah. um, the new game has a lot of complexity, but a lot of it is opt-in complexity. So you don't have to know 
these 18 things that everybody can do, but you know, 12 of those you can't do them well. Yeah, you can right. just you could in theory try it. Where now it's more like I want to focus on this. I'm gonna delve into. Plus, it, it might be satisfying eventually for you with your character, your PC, your one thing that you're dealing with to find the holes that Jason talked about and plug them. But as the GM, you either are running what you've got and you can't plug the holes in the math, or you are adjusting every stop block of everything that you come into. And it takes a long time. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of what we're trying to talk about here. So in first edition, uh, every single character, every single one, was asked to calculate their combat maneuver defense and combat maneuver bonus. But most characters never use that bonus. They would have no reason to, to break that thing out. If you're playing the wizard and it's like, I guess I grapple him, you're in a desperate bad place. It doesn't mean that that didn't happen sometimes. But it was a thing that you had to learn. You had to learn how to calculate. You had to learn the significance of it. And you had to incorporate that into your build. And odds are you weren't going to use it more than once or twice in that character's entire career. Um, so those sorts of things, the extra things you need to learn, the extra steps you have to take just to get to the table and start the fun, the stories, the, the tales, the, the creation of your character and, and their narrative journey, everything that gets in the way of that is something that we wanted to look at very closely and decide, is this doing the work? Is this, is this necessary to have a fun game? Um, and, you know, I think that's, that's where we started. Like, the, 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 the thought was, make sure the game plays the same. Like, the feel of the game. Because we don't want to change the world. We don't want to change the types of stories we tell. The stories that you played in first edition should be stories that still make sense in second edition. Even if the details are changed slightly, it's not like all of a sudden there aren't wizards anymore. Right? You know, and now everybody's got machine guns. I mean, well, it depends if you have enough gunslingers at your table. But, um, I, you know, we, we, we wanted to make sure that, that at its heart the game experience was still the same. But then beyond that, we started looking at, okay, what, what can we do to make this game smoother, easier to learn, easier to run, easier to understand? Well, and there's also, like, with that, there's making the game feel like it is a story that's taking place in this world, but also seeing, like, where does Pathfinder 1 kind of prevent you from telling some of the stories you want to tell, and how can we make some of those kind of uh, sing a little better in the yeah. new version? And, and kind of give you a little more room for, uh, for improvisation and for excitement with right. those and stories. That's sort of some data that we got in some cases from you guys when you're jamming with your homebrew games, but even from many of our adventure developers would say, yeah, would either tell us or they'd write plots that had to have workarounds around certain elements. And just sometimes you would see it over and over again. To give an example, is it okay if I give a minor spoiler in one of the of rituals? Of course it is. This is a Pathfinder 2nd uh, okay. edition panel. How many of you in here or on Twitch have played at least one published adventure in Pathfinder 1st edition where it's sort of hand-waved and it was like, uh, this guy cast the charm spell lots and lots of times over and over again on this person and now they just sort of do whatever they say and are just really biddable uh, because you couldn't really do that at that level. I know of at least three times that that happened. We now have a ritual called Inveigle that is a long-term, like Jafar's hold over the Sultan type situation. You can't just do that in a fight. But when you have someone at your mercy that you want, which was always true for the cases of those long-time charms, you want them to be very biddable. We've added that into the core game so that you can tell that story 
of Jaff the, the, the vizier who's taking control of the sultan, or what is it, the magus who's undermined control from and, the weird person at the yeah, top and, of the tower. And beyond that, kind of the whole ritual system is one of those things. It's like, they're doing a ritual in Pathfinder 1. It's like, well, what are the rules for that ritual? The core rulebook doesn't really say a lot on that. So now it's kind of like, oh, here's how rituals are structured. So if you need to build a ritual, you can do that. I think we also learned a lot from uh, kind of the bad jokes that float around, sort of the the, the, the Pathfinder uh, fan base. Like Grapple. Grapple. Um, uh, Mathfinder. That's one of my favorites. Um, and it's all like, oh, okay. Well, maybe that is an issue. Or, um, you know, kind of the, the snide remarks you make when... The game itself is not fitting uh, the narrative you have in your mind for a, a, a fantasy adventure game. And so we tried to scrub as, as many of those out and not let the rules get in the way of you guys uh, telling and participating in a great story. Yeah, so I mean, at its heart, we tried to build a game that when you approach it, um, there is a minimum number of things to learn, then you start building your character, and your character adds complexity to the game for you. So we tried to separate those two, right? We said, okay, what type of character do you want to play? Learn the pieces that you need to play that type of character. Now that seems really obvious, but it, it required us to separate out some of those things. That's why combat maneuver bonus went away, and we found different ways to do that. Um, and so, you know, it's like learn the heart of the system, learn the proficiency scaling and how that works because it applies to everything. You learn the rule once and now you know what it means. Oh, you're an expert in will saves, you're an expert in athletics, you're a uh, master at, uh, you know, fortitude saving throws. All of those things work off a similar formula base, which makes the entire game a lot easier to understand very quickly. Once you learn it once, you can roll on and, and apply it to the rest of the game. And then it just comes down to a matter of what type of character you want to play. If you want one with more complicated techie options, you choose the more complicated techie options. You want to go the simpler route, you go the simpler route. That's the choices that you make as players, so it, it, it works for what you want out of the play experience. It's not just, this is everything for everyone and everyone has to know it. That makes the game a lot harder to teach to new players. And one of the examples I was uh, mentioning at uh, one of my games earlier today is the Druid, where if you are playing the Druid, you get this and this and this and this, and you get to master all those systems. In PF1, um, right? In PF1. Yeah. And now it's kind of like, if you want to do all those things, you can take feats to do all those things. But now if you want to just, like, I don't want to worry about wild shaping, I want to just cast cool spells, there's a path for you to just cast cool spells without having to do a whole lot of adjustments like through archetypes and stuff to get there. Um, just kind of as a basic part of the class, basic structure. And to latch on to what Logan and Jason were saying, bring it back to philosophy, I feel like that the philosophy from my perspective, and I come to this from a computer science background, is that we had something that was like that old thing that you've written in Kapuya Code. It, it um, is really great. It does a lot of great stuff. That would be Pathfinder First Edition in the metaphor. But it's been patched together through a lot of different authors who have coded it. It's a little hard to code new code that goes into the program. Because of this, it's a little hard to get into it when you're first trying to learn it. We wanted to have something that's more of an object-oriented design, something where you have figured out what each piece does so it's easy for you to get in and it's easy for you to design your own stuff to tweak and modify the game and to make the game exactly what you want for your group, even if that's not what we put in at baseline. As Jason said, the first rule is this game is yours. 
The interesting thing about uh, you know using the computer program analogy is it's absolutely true in computer programs. So not only is it easier for you, uh, when, when we do digital tools and we work with our partners to do digital tools, it's going to be easier for them to actually program towards it. When we translate, when our partners translate it into new languages, that, uh, that system also makes uh, localization very easy as well. Yeah, so, and, and you know, Mark mentioned uh, kind of the, the, the kit-bashed nature of first edition, right? So first edition was an inherited system. We got, you know, the basics from 3.5. And we tweaked and we we altered it, but over the years we wanted to add to it and add our own mark to it, add our own flourishes. So we started building new subsystems, new pieces, new components, but all of them are bolt-on, right? It's just like, this is the way the existing system works. This has to work within that framework, which means it can't always work the best way we would want it to work. It just needs to be there. Uh, you know, uh, I think the most obvious famous example is archetypes, right? We love archetypes. They're great. They're a, a signature part of Pathfinder. They're the way that you really customize and focus out your character. Well, the problem in first edition is that they're built entirely upon class features, and classes without a lot of class features can't have a lot of archetypes. So it, exactly, the cleric or the wizard, to be honest. Uh, neither one of them had much in the way of archetypes because there was nothing for us to build with. And, and that, that comes down to the nature of how archetypes came into being. They, they were designed to be a way to swap out class features. As a matter of fact, before they were even archetypes, it was just alternate class features that we ended up bundling and changing into a new concept. Um, with second edition, we're able to kind of look at all that fresh and start with it uh, with native assumptions of this is going to be in the game, this is going to be in the game, this is going to be in the game. That was another part of, of what our headspace was going into this was we know what we want to put in. Let's make sure that we build the system in a way that leaves room for it, that makes it work. So like having all of the classes give class feats and then you trade those class feats out for your archetypes class feats means that now everybody can have archetypes and better yet, we don't have to customize the archetype for each class. We don't have to do the rogue swashbucklery class, uh, uh, archetype, then the bard swashbucklery archetype, then the barbarian swashbucklery archetype. They're all trying to do the same thing, just a little differently, because it has to key off different replaced class features. And and one of the things is, like we kind of built the structures so that if you know the structure of one class, you know the structure of the next class. But that's just the structure. So fighter feats are going to be way different from druid feats are gonna be way different from rogue feats. And the way you actually implement your abilities and your special actions and everything is gonna be so varied that while you can look at the two classes and see they have the same very basic structure, you can tell there's they don't play the same way at all. Mm -hmm. To rephrase that, I would, um, I would say learn it the same, but play it with a really wide and diverse uh, ability to play style so the classes play super differently. So we've been talking a lot about how we've tried to make the game easier to learn and easier to play. But there's a backside to this too, that you know that's, that's great stuff for new players. But for existing players, for those of you who have been with us for a long time, the thing that was very important on, on that side of the coin was to make sure that the game has a robust depth of options and choices to allow you to do all the things you've been able to do. Now, obviously, we're only putting out one book here in August, you know, one giant core rulebook that has 640 pages. It's a beast, but that's nothing compared to the thousands of pages that first edition has. 
So we're going to be a little limited at first as we build more and more options out there for you to play with. But the groundwork is there for us to go in a million directions. Yeah, um, it's one of those things where if you look at the two core books side by side, you can see how much more is in this core book. But people are looking at all of Pathfinder. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so we know there's going to be some amount of comparison where a lot of people aren't going to have like their favorite class. Yeah, it might feel characters. at first like you don't have as many options. But if you compare core book to core book, you have so many more different ways you can do things. Um, uh, and, and I think that, you know, carried over into a lot of the way we were building it, right? You know, to understand, you know, where we needed to go with it to make sure that all of these kind of different ways that you like to tell your stories still works. And that's not just on the player side either. That's on the GM side too, and especially in Monsters. Yeah, um, and one of the things, like, with Monsters uh, that we wanted to do was make it so... The amount of work you're doing to create the monster is a lot more proportional to what it's actually doing in the game. Because in first edition, if you're making a monster, we give you this very long, very detailed process to get exactly accurate numbers, which are not necessarily any good. <laughs> uh, so you can, you can follow those numbers exactly and have a really bad monster. Uh, so one of the things we went uh, is more of a benchmark-based system where it is like talking more about how the monster feels in play what you're trying to get the monster to accomplish and how to design to that, rather than kind of saying, well, it has this hit die, so it has this many hit points and you know, that sort of thing. Right. And, and part of that is just, um, there's kind of a general, uh, a little more acknowledgement that these are humans playing a game and that's a human running the game and we should take advantage of that. So there's a lot more room for kind of the GM to make calls with fewer things that are just like, well, it's this amount of distance for the perception check, therefore it takes this exact penalty. There's a lot more where the GM can just kind of say, yeah, that's about a DC 15, and have more certainty that they're doing the right thing rather than just kind of saying, well, the table says this, so we should play it by that. To go back to what Logan was saying about monsters, the philosophy that we have with monster building for second edition, like, well, there's still a framework, there's still gonna be guidelines, it doesn't just throw you out there, but it's more of a top-down approach rather than a bottom-up approach. You start with the concept of the monster. What do I need it to do? What is it gonna be like? What's the cool thing about fighting against this monster that makes it different than fighting against other monsters? And that leads you down towards its other abilities. The bottom-up from PF1 was, what's its hit dice and type? Let me cross-calculate these numbers. You start from all the small details, you wind up with a high concept at the end, and you find out, oh, my Fey Warrior guy has like 12 too low of accuracy. And it, it, a lot of it is a lot of it is just kind of treating the the game master like an author or a game designer, and less like a machine. And Stephen, you managed a lot of this process and the process on on NPCs. Um, you want to talk about how how we're approaching that as well? Um, well, in a lot of ways, uh, uh, NPC and monster design are hand in hand. You know, uh, in in Pathfinder First Edition, of course, you'd make an NPC just like you'd make a PC, and we had NPC classes as well. But if you wanted a swashbuckly kind of kind of NPC, you'd go look in in the swashbuckler class, build it up, uh, and it was just as time consuming with all of the choices uh, of you guys making uh, your characters. That of course you're going to live in and and uh, play lots of games with. Unfortunately, uh, especially if that uh, NPC is there uh, just to uh, be an adversary in a fight, it lives for, uh, depending on your session, anywhere between 15 to 45 minutes. So you're spending twice as much time in order for half as much play. 
and, um, and maybe not even getting it to do what you want it to exactly. do. Exactly. And then you're like, oh, well, maybe I should have picked this feat and everything else. And so with NPCs now, uh, you figure out what flavor you want. You might sprinkle it with uh, class feats from that class, uh, but you don't have to pick all of them. You could actually pick a little bit more. You could modify those feats in order for uh, uh, that NPC to do exactly what you what you want it to do. You heard that uh, uh, they're deadly skilled with a rapier, um, and even though maybe you take a look at the fighter and it doesn't give sneak attack, it's like, well, I'm going to give this guy sneak attack. He's a he's a sneaky bastard with with a rapier, but I don't want him to be totally rogue. I want him to be, you know, uh, uh, a little bit more fighter uh, ish too, and um, you pay a little bit of lip service to whatever you're trying to trying to build. Uh, it, it's got to make sense to people in the world, right? If it's a if it's a fifth level fightery roguey kind of person, they should have comparable abilities within a, a, a maybe a smaller scope as PCs. Uh, but it still works on a benchmark system. You know what the minimums are. You know where you want it to be. Uh, you know you can just adjust it uh, where you want that NPC. To live in and, game space. and fundamentally, we treat like a player class as like that is a path to get to a certain place, mm -hmm. but it is not universally the path that right. everybody in the entire fiction of the world follows. Like, not everybody is. I'm a rogue. I'm selecting exactly this many feats because I'm seventh level. Because exactly. they all have different experiences, and you know, a lot of times in first edition, we had to kind of fake it anyway. Right. Right. Like, yep. well, they found this magic artifact, so therefore, this they got this ability that they're not supposed and to. And I want to say to the internet, before you react completely to this, you absolutely can build an NPC with the full PC rules. Oh, sure, if you yeah. want to yeah. take three hours or however long to build your high level NPC. It's taking you three hours to build a character. <laughs> to build a 20th level wizard. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, if I was about to say that. All right, all right, fine. So if you want to, you can. And unlike Starfinder, where for other reasons there was a little bit of a phase shift, it'll be around about the same thing. It'll just take you longer, but it might give you the detail you need if that's a recurring and, character. And if it's, or if it's a super one who's going to join the join the group. And, so and we, we generally say that like if, if you, you want. if you build the character all the way from scratch, usually it's going to have more options. And if you uh, build it just by the benchmarks, you're likely going to have fewer options, but a little better numbers. So they kind of balance out in that way. It's right. kind of staying power and strategy versus... Well, and, 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 run. and some of this, the, this kind of base decoupling allows you to create the NPC to do what you need the NPC to do and ignore the things that you don't need it to do. Right, so if I was in first edition, if I needed, you know, the, the, the player characters are, have been entered in a baking contest and uh, the ringer in this is the town master baker. And uh, he's incredibly skilled at baking. Well, if I had to drop that guy's stat block in first edition, I, he would end up also being amazingly got a good at like, to hit rapiers. And like he could kill you. Like he was also super skilled at, you know, he had a lot of hit points. And it was really weird that it's just like this doughy baker character that I need also has amazing will saves um, because all of the stats and numbers would make him that way. The decoupling allows us to kind of just be like, well, yeah, you can be an incredibly skilled baker but still have the combat stats of a second level character. That's okay. That's what the system needs and it makes sense, right? You know, not every baker is a skilled warlord on the battlefield. Right. I mean, I've met a few, but most <laughs> of them aren't. And there's, there's a real example, uh, just as soon as you got into some of the adventures, Age of Ashes has someone who's a legendary smith, just really, really good. They're not a slouch at fighting, but they're certainly not like a level 15 fighter. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, 
I don't know. What else do we want to add to this before we open it up to questions? Anybody got anything they want to throw out on the table? I think we did a lot of the good. I mean, I, we talked a lot about uh, uh, character building and NPC building and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But also, uh, when you're sitting around the table and teaching new people or learning the game or just playing the game, we tried to uh, streamline that uh, where we could uh, as well. Um, so trying to cut down on all of the things you have to learn or look up, um, uh, there's still going to be plenty of things, mostly as you, you start playing the game. But uh, you know, the action economy, uh, a more comprehensive and uh, and in a lot of ways easier to use condition uh, system, uh, damage types, uh, resistances and weaknesses. Yeah. Uh, there's also um, we did a lot to kind of um, like in, do less vanilla kind of bonuses and stuff. So yeah. for instance, like uh, in the sorcerer, so the sorcerer you get to pick what type of spells you cast. So you could have arcane or primal or divine or occult. Um, and there are feats to kind of make your character a little more tied into that um, uh, into that particular tradition, but they're all different because being a little more arcane means you get to study a little more. You have kind of a spellbooky thing, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, being more divine has a different feel to it. So rather than kind of saying like, you know, pick one of your, uh, pick your arcane tradition and you get this plus one on checks to identify spells of that tradition, right, right, right. We, we really kind of went deep and like, okay, how do we want this to feel and how do we reinforce kind of that story with the mechanics? Similarly, um, like instead of a belt of uh, dexterity that gives you a bonus to your dexterity score, that is all, we have specific items that's like, this is the dexterity item, the anklets of alacrity. This means you get a dexterity bonus and you can activate it to do something special that's kind of dex related. So that it feels a little more kind of a, uh, hand in glove with the story of your character, the item, or whatever. Yeah, we kind of wanted all those items to be more than just like you know all those all those items, feats, everything to be something that was just more impactful and more yeah. important than and just like here's a numerical bonus. And less, 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 less an generic item. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and something that kind of kicks your brain working about it rather than like oh cool I want a bonus I'll take this and I'll get a bonus. It's kind of like well which of if I have multiple options, which of these do I want? Because they all do different things. So there's one side of philosophy that we didn't talk about because it's actually pretty different to the completely gaming philosophy, which is the metagaming philosophy stuff that we mentioned in um, the game mastering chapter. I don't mean a philosophy about don't metagame. I mean about the game as a space that is a place where the GM and the players are all players. Um, all the stuff that Logan talked about in the last panel about establishing the Pathfinder baseline yeah, there's, there's a fair amount more kind of about how to actually people with people when you're playing your game, um, as opposed to kind of like, well, here are the rules. You're on your own for all the, all the social aspects of this, because that fundamentally it's a social activity. So we want to talk a little more, especially if someone's just picking this book up and they've never played a role-playing game, to kind of give them an idea of what their expectations can be, what kind of things are healthy for a game, and what uh, kind of things aren't. Yeah, because fundamentally we want everybody to have a good time at the table. And if, if you know, if the game or the environment or the way people are, are behaving, you know, is, is detracting from that fun, that's really that's really not good for anybody. So Or even sometimes you might have a great idea for a story, but it just doesn't hit the tolerance levels of the people in your group, right? Just having those conversations about what kind of you know, what kind of adventure do you want to go on? Do you want like grim dark like me? Yeah. And, or, um, you know, do you want it to be a little bit more light and fluffier? You want somewhere in between? Do you want uh, more drama, more horror? 
and and what are the boundaries like because uh, at the end of the day while uh, many GMs love to tell a story role-playing games do tell a story but with a very interactive crowd and uh, uh, you want to make sure that everyone's having a good time yeah because you're not just it's 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 not passive it's not it's not reading a thing or watching a thing yeah. you're actually being asked to participate in the thing right. and depending on the direction content of that that can be a bit much for some folks mm -hmm. so you know you got to be careful about that sort of stuff there's also some additional things we put in there uh, that are kind of like giving the GM the tools they need and saying here are the tools we trust you to use these so for example um, in first edition it can be really hard to figure out like okay we didn't have a fight but it seems like we should have gotten some XP from something uh, and we have kind of more of a framework of like here are accomplishments here it gives you gives you a general idea of like what kind of things uh, what kind of XP rewards are appropriate for things that are in combat so that you're not just kind of you did um, save the entire town from burning to a cinder 10 yeah, XP yeah but, <laughs> but you convinced the kobolds to leave instead of killing them so no XP oh. sorry one for each orphanage saved um okay um, well, I see that we've we've been talking for about half the panel now, so I think it's about time for us to open it up to questions. Uh, you can ask us about the philosophy of the game or anything you've heard here today. That's that's fine. We'll we'll open it up. Hello. Hey there. Hello. Uh, so this is kind of going back to some of the philosophy stuff, specifically around the action system. I know in Pathfinder One, a lot of um, people had some disdain for iterative attacks and how that slowed down high level play. Mm -hmm. um, what was the primary driver to move from that to what exists in second edition with how the attacks work there? Um, so there's a couple things. Uh, I, I think first of all, the moment we we settled upon three, and wasn't for a while, wasn't it four? No, it was three. No, it was, it was, yeah. three. It was pretty much. Three. Uh, we had played with four, but you, then you had to save one for a reaction for a little while, but. Uh, or something. Anyway, um, I, I, I think once we had settled on that, we realized that as long as someone's just doing three beats, right? If that's three attacks or them moving and needing to move their, their miniature around or them casting a two-action spell, which was more complicated, the three actions also is a way of measuring the time of your turn. It's more than just the time for your character. It's also about the time of your turn. So rolling three attacks right in a row really isn't much more time consuming, especially if that's what you know you're gonna do, uh, to casting a spell with a whole bunch of saving throws that need to be made, which takes more actions than just one. So uh, I, I think that was, a, that was a big part of it. Um, it, it. It's also a little different. So you go many levels, mostly if you're starting at first level and on and on, and you're like, I move, I hit, I move, I hit. And then you, as you get uh, uh, up in level, right, that's what starts to slow it down. If, if you have basically the same action economy from beginning to end, you just become better at the economy part of it. Um, it, it, feel, it. It may seem to slow down the game at first, but it really doesn't. Um, uh, but it continues with that trend all the way through. And, and it also leads to just a lot more kind of interesting situations because mm -hmm. Like once again, like if you're looking at the the fiction you want in a game, do you yeah. want someone to say, "Oh, I moved"? Well, the 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 grand hero moved to the door and stood there and swung his sword repeatedly without doing anything else. Right, is not necessarily like the coolest story. So having that kind of flexibility in there means, uh, and also like uh, removing attacks of opportunity is a universal thing and kind of um, leads to more like more movement, more. Um, more action. kind of trying risky things, right, yeah. more action, uh, and a lot more improvisation. Um, and that means even if like even if your turn 
at low levels can be a little more complicated, it's because you're doing something interesting yeah. with it. And I want to quickly explain what Stephen meant when he said get better at the action economy. He's talking about abilities like sudden charge that let you do more than the number <coughs> of things that it usually takes. In my game yesterday morning, somebody made six attacks with his weapons in one of the rounds. That was a thing, even though he only had three actions. Yeah. So we, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I guess the only thing is, is, is like a lot of our uh, philosophy, you get to opt into those choices. Right. Yeah. A lot of those times, the iterative attacks just came to you, and you're like, oh, now I, like, this is better in some ways, but now I have to deal with it. Right. Now I have to learn it. And, and and it's kind of a feast or famine. It's like I'm yes. going to do all these attacks, some of which might suck, or I'm going to do something entirely different that is not any of these. Right. Uh, and now it's like, well, I know I've got two good attacks, mm -hmm. and I can do a third thing, and maybe I'm going to pull out this potion because I think I'm going to need it. The right. way that that turned into a full round action if you took more than one attack really put a clamp on the entire game because it became the thing you wanted to do which meant you didn't do anything else and that that really kind of narrowed in your options nothing could compete with that option wise it's full attack and five foot step yeah. if yeah. you have to move where, you lose unless you have pounds. where is uh, unless you're a spellcaster because yeah. then, then you can there's like a, a big you know yeah it created some really weird dichotomies in the game that uh, we're glad to move away from now so Technotrooper3 on Twitch asks, what was the philosophy behind codifying exploration and downtime activities in, in those respective modes? Well, they were always there. Um, and uh, and I guess we just took the guessing game out of like what mode of yeah, play. It, it's kind of just a tacit <laughs> acknowledgement of like, you are going to run this differently and you're yeah. going to engage with it differently. And we wanted to kind of firmly establish like, all right, if you're in an encounter, you are measuring everything very precisely. If you are in exploration, you are uh, giving the GM a lot more leeway on kind of how time passes and how they want to implement the rules. And then when you're in downtime, there's a lot of stuff you don't have to care about right. because you're not at risk, there's no danger. You're I mean, getting to do a, a very different thing. Yeah, and codifying it also doesn't mean you should like, uh, you know, beat people over the head with it, you know. Okay, yep. it is now exploration yeah. mode, and blah, 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 and, and, and do it like that. You'll find that when you play it, just like in, in, in P1, where we did have these modes, we just weren't explicit about it, they'll melt into uh, one another. Yeah, you won't, you won't declare yeah, mode state shift. changes. The screen yeah, doesn't is. blur, yeah. and then everyone disappears to another <laughs> battlefield, and they're all lined up, and it says encounter mode. Yeah, you got big <laughs> flags in the background that you have to raise up. It's, it's weird, yeah. <laughs> So as a society GM, one of the challenges in Pathfinder 1 was material that was published in things like the player companion guides. And when problems would come up in society play, the rules team would be like, oh, we didn't write that. That's not our thing. Uh, what's the Paizo approach in Pathfinder 2 for as things get added on to... So we have a different workflow now than yeah. we did before. I wouldn't say before we said, oh, not... It was not that we said, oh, not our problem. It was more so that... It was not our place to um, make a decision about a book that somebody else was working on. It's not professional for us to just step in and say, "Well, we know what your well, what your rule what, does." What it was is that we weren't we weren't directly involved, right? It's a different team creating different products. So uh, the thing that's interesting is that we've we've had a bit of a sea shift in the way that we do things now with Second Edition, with team members being appended to all products. That way, we can have an insight into the rules that are being put in all of those products. So that should help us have a better understanding and make sure everything's a more holistic yeah. game environment. I think the biggest challenge, like 
Yeah, there are the occasional rules thing that was just like, oh my god, what is that? Um, but but that 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 would happen in core rule books too, right? You know, yep. mistakes like that are only human. I think the thing that was a bigger challenge, the the thing that we were really missing out on, was just like. Oh, that ice spell is just like that other ice spell we already did. And left hand, left hand and right hand didn't know what they were doing. So now we have two different versions of basically the same spell. And that's a real problem. Yeah, that's that's really confusing and, and can be really bewildering for players. Yeah, and kind of uh, our role on a lot of these books is um, if it's something that is not originating with our team, the developer is kind of in charge of making that book the coolest book they can do. And we are in charge of kind of making sure its place within kind of the entire ecosystem of the game makes sense. And so we, we avoid having like, well, here's just something we already did. Or, you know, uh, having a subsystem that works one way in this adventure and a totally different way in this adventure, uh, even though they're ostensibly the same thing happening in the world. So it's kind of, um, and right now we're also doing a fair amount of like, everybody is a, a, but us is a little fresher to the rules. So we're kind of doing a little more of that, but kind of long-term, that's our goal. Yep. Yep. Thank you. All right. Chaotic Accordion from Twitch asks, how many players do you assume when you're setting up the math for Pathfinder 2nd Edition? However many you have. The, the game assumes four as a start and base, but it's expandable or collapsible to kind of whatever you want to do. And we have in the rules, it just says add a player, subtract a player, this is what you need to do. Understand that it is true if it does get way below four, just the lack of variety in what your characters can do can hurt you more than the loss of the person on the battlefield. And if it does get ridiculously large, you do need to think about what you're doing with that many players. Pharos1968 asks, when it comes to third-party publishers, how much did their existence and contributions to first edition affect the design philosophy of second edition? Um, oh, that's tricky. I, I, that's a tricky question. I, I, I think we are, you know, we spend a good deal of time uh, looking at the content that's coming out from third-party publishers. We love our third-party publishers; they do some great work. Um, I always kind of, kind of find it funny when we're both working on this. When I see like a product come out that we're already like two-thirds the way through creating something parallel, and it's yeah. like, oh boy. I, I, I honestly, I was, I was really worried when we were doing a cult and we were creating psionic, uh, oh, psychic magic. Psychic. It's different. And and the folks at Dreamscard Press have been doing psionics for years, a conversion of the three point five psionics. And like, I think that was one of the spots where we went. Well, we can't do that. They've kind of already are doing that thing, and to come and then do it on top of them seems really mean. Yeah. So like, um, we actually like took psychic magic in a different direction uh, kind of as a, as, a, as a response to that. Well, I mean, and, and I also think at that point like what we had established about Golarian and about our setting kind of said like well it kind of should work differently because right. we have these these things established in our world that are different from these. We have major yeah. occult fans on staff in Eric also Mona, true. our publisher and in, uh, we had freelancers like Brandon Hodge that yeah. were sprinkling occult things that were there before our book that we needed to look at. And it wasn't the same as Psionics. It actually yeah. was went to real world occult traditions instead. Yeah, and so and, much so much of what we were doing with the edition shift is like you're looking at the bones of the game, yeah. right? So like all the kind of details add on top of it, like it's all about kind of structure and uh, you know laying a good uh, groundwork for it. So um, yeah, and a fun a little details don't come fun a little bit is is when uh, you do take a look at it and you do kind of respect that a, a third party publishers are going to do interesting things and you do something like uh, a cult adventures 
Um, and then you show it to Bruce Cordell, who's a friend of mine. We were on a panel together, and I was ex he was talking about when he designed the psionic system for uh, third edition, and I was explaining to him what was in an Cult of Ventures, and he's like, oh, wow, that sounds neat. I didn't even know you guys were doing that. I'm going to have to take a look at it. So, you know, um, uh, being able to, to see what other people are doing and then flex your own creative uh, muscle to make yeah. sure you don't... You don't interfere um, and and can actually complement the stuff they're doing is always a goal. So you guys talked about uh, archetypes being less class repla class replacements and uh, more built into each individual class as not add-ons but just changing things out. Are prestige classes going to exist at all? Are they going to exist similarly, or are they just done? So there is a concept that we talk about in the core book, despite the fact that there are no examples of it, of the prestige archetype. Uh, we got rid of that. Did we? Yes. So we didn't get rid of that in a way that takes it away from you. Right. Yeah, we, we did it in a way name. that removed yeah. a restriction. The, the name wasn't doing anything because yeah, it's basically right. yeah, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Just, a, just a very specific yeah. prerequisite. So, so there can just be really archetypes. Sunday and a show. There can just be archetypes with very high requirements or yeah. requirements that require in-world stuff, higher yeah. level character, powerful abilities. That's your prestige yeah. classes. Which isn't to say we won't ever see some possibility that's like, oh, maybe that should be a prestige thing that's that's really different from all this. But so, but really, all the term meant really was you need to meet a bunch of prerequisites yeah. before and you, you take it. And you could only have and, one back <laughs> in the day when and, it existed. And and otherwise, it's just the same. So yeah. like that concept, the multi-classing concept, the way archetypes work, we realized all of them were trying to basically do the same thing, which is change out aspects of your character for different aspects of a different character. That's what all of those are trying to do. Um, and we were like, well, if they're all trying to do the same thing, they should probably just all work the same way instead of each being a slightly different flavor of the same exact concept. So I was wondering if you could uh, speak a little bit about the uh, design philosophy behind skills in second edition. Like, mm. it used to be you have a lot of class abilities that could Cover sure. skills. Um, I, I think fundamentally one of the first things we decided was um, skills are kind of a universal thing that all characters get to plug into in various ways. And having a bunch of your class features speak to skills um, isn't always the right path because it's real easy to feel like, oh, I didn't get any cool combat abilities because I've, I've got, I'm really good at, at knowledge and nobility. Um, and and that, wasn't, that wasn't always the right choice. We wanted to make sure that these things weren't always competing with each other, especially when it came to skills, class features, ancestry choices, and things like that. So some of them worked on different buckets. I think there's another facet of this too, and that, that, that talks about what we decided to, when we decided to move away from ranks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but we have ranks. We just have... Yeah, the yeah, proficiency five, five ranks. Proficiency yeah, yeah. ranks. Um, but yeah, we, we kind of got rid of the... Each level I get these seven points that I can spend on different things, but a lot of the time I'm just going to spend them on the same thing over and over again. Instead we kind of said, all right, you're going to get these increases and your skill is going to continue go to go up because we're going to assume you're still practicing that skill that you're trained in and still getting better at it as you level up. Um, but to kind of say like, okay, this is the level where I'm getting a skill increase. I'm going to really kind of single out one that's like, oh, this is the one I really want to go up in. This is the one I want to open up new possibilities with and be uh, much stronger at. Uh, alternating with skill feats, which are going to expand the functions of those skills. 
so that instead of kind of doing seven choices that you don't care about that much individually, you are making one choice at a time that feels more significant. I want to quickly go back to the philosophy of the buckets that Jason mentioned, because that is a fairly big thing that we didn't talk about so far. Having different feats and abilities have their own unique place where you take them is something we actually learned from you guys in various playtests. I learned it a little bit on the Kinetis' playtest. We learned it a lot on the Vigilante playtest to have social and Vigilante talent separate so you didn't feel like you were taking into your combat stuff. When you got the cool social stuff, it felt more like a plus, an add-on, rather than, oh, well, I got like skill focus in PF1. You get six to the skill. That's an incredible amount. It was still unpopular because you lost a combat ability to take it. So by spreading it out, you can have a diverse character and you don't feel you're losing out. F3 Cubed from Twitch asks, What are the ideas and philosophies behind changing the concept of the Paladin to the Champion, and how do those restrictions work in Pathfinder 2nd Edition? So, um, the kind of the idea behind it is we had a lot of character concepts that are very similar to the Paladin in that they are a kind of a martial champion of their deity, that they're following a code, but they weren't necessarily lawful good. And so we kind of looked at those and just thought, how, is there a way we can kind of expand the number of classes or the number of uh, different types of characters you can play so that it works with more deities and kind of is a little more expansive? Um, and we kind of, the way we ended up structuring the champion is kind of a two-tiered approach. And in the core rulebook, you have the rules for all the good champions. So it has the tenets of good, and this is kind of like the priorities list of the tenets of good. Mm -hmm. And then you select your specialization. So you're going to be a redeemer, who's the neutral good one. You're going to be a paladin, who's the lawful good one. Uh, or you're going to be, what's the? Liberator. Liberator. Liberator is the chaotic good one. And that's going to add on to your paladin's code another set of tenets that are more specific. Strangely, I think we learned a lot uh, uh, on how to structure the champion from the anti-paladin in first edition, right? Because uh, the anti-paladin, of course, is the opposite, chaotic evil. But man, we had Hell Knights, and wow, we wanted to have anti-paladins that were lawful evil. And so we ended up creating the tyrant uh, archetype. And so we could go the archetype route, or we could just build it into the class itself and give people more variety. Mm -hmm. It was one of those questions that uh, we asked during the surveys that uh, I think took us a little bit by surprise was just how many people were like, yeah, Paladin should be any good, right? Um, we thought it was going to be like a 50-50 split at yeah. best, but um, a lot of people wanted that. So, yeah, I mean, and, you know, we moved away from the name Paladin just because it has certain very strict... Uh, uh, interpretations and understandings and its definition is one of kind of lawful good warrior. Yeah, and a um, paladin is still a paladin. It's yeah, just a yeah, sub, subcategory of champion. Yeah. Hi, I was wondering kind of some of the design philosophies between what, making the decision between, you know, alternate class features and what should be a fully fledged archetype. Uh, from first edition? Is it? Oh, uh, for second edition. So, uh, in so yeah, in, in second edition, uh, if something would have been an alternate class feature before, instead that's just going to be a feat. Yep. So, um, uh, and we haven't really dealt much with like alternate class features in the sense that they swap out kind of a core part of the class. Because the things we left in as static class <laughs> features are things that are like kind of so integral to the class um, that almost every character is going to need them. There are going to be a few that I think eventually we might end up doing some kind of archetype style stuff to swap out, like maybe bravery or something like that if you're a craven fighter. Um, 
But a lot of those are like, sneak attack, we know that is kind of defining for the rogue. And if you approach things in a different way, maybe that's a different class. Um, so uh, most of that kind of alternate class feature stuff is just going to be covered directly by uh, your feat selection. But here's the thing I think Jason was remembering, which is we did define a class of archetypes that we did not use in the core called class archetypes that exist. Only one class can take them. And by definition, they might switch out those features, like Logan said, for a very unusual situation where you don't have them. Yeah, and, and or they might just be so hard-coded to that class's abilities that it wouldn't make sense for anyone else to take them. Yes. And, and right. we mostly want those to do things like, for some reason, this is a bard who is a prepared caster instead of a spontaneous caster. Like, that changes something so foundational about the class. But it, maybe all the other bard stuff works perfectly fine for them. That might be the kind of thing that would be a classic. Or the archetype. wizard learns from genies instead of schools of magic and uses elements. I don't know. Like, that would be an archetype, though. Is it Will Smith? It might be. <laughs> right. uh, I hope not. All right. How do you gents feel about a three-question uh, lightning round from Twitch? Snowbane line behind you. Go for it. All right. Uh, first one. Are the monster building rules similar to Starfinder? They're-ish. They're a little broader, generally. similarities, broadly. But I would say that they are probably a little bit simpler to use from the top-down way, but they have a similar philosophy behind what... Yeah. More art, less pseudoscience. Yeah, I think that's the big difference, is that we really did kind of step back and go, yeah, there's some artistry to this, and there always has been, but... That that's how you got the difference between a good monster and a bad monster. Both of them might be legal, but one of them they kind of took a look at it and tried to understand how to make it the best monster it could be. Yeah. Like uh, you know, we talked about it earlier about you know kind of starting uh, with you know you you start with your monster concept. Like some of that is so like like we actually challenge you to go. Okay, so is this a monster that's going to be fought by itself? Well, that means you need to build different kind of abilities for it, different sorts of uh, you know, special actions it can take to serve that role as being a solo monster. Like just earlier today, I was throwing a Hydra at the Glass Cannon podcast, guys. Well, the Hydra isn't a monster, generally speaking, that you're like, yeah, here come eight Hydras. Um, you know, uh, that, that's not how generally they're used in the game. It's usually one Hydra because one Hydra is scary enough. It has a whole bunch of heads. Uh, that's what it's supposed to do. So when the Hydra comes up out of the water and uses uh, its terrifying ability for two actions that allows it to make a bite attack at everyone within reach, the heads just dart out and it bites everybody. But that's an ability designed because we knew that's what it needed to do to challenge the group. And quick counterpoint, yesterday in my game I used multiple Hydras. This is not a solo tag or trait that's on, that's on the monster that demands that you use it. It's more yeah. like the solitary thing in the ecology that says this is usually fought alone, so I think about it. But you absolutely can. They were higher level, you, right? They were. Yeah. They, were. Yeah. they were. They were. They were. And we're, uh, we're also... Uh, you absolutely we, can do it however you want. Yeah. We, we haven't quite uh, entirely put together the Game Mastery Guide text for... Uh, telling the GM how to make monsters. We have our own internal guides right now. We're going to uh, refine that a little more. And while I don't think we're going to quite do the graft, graft, graft system, we are probably going to say, you want to do a spellcastery monster, you probably want to use these benchmarks because we have like low AC versus high AC and that kind of stuff. So we're probably going to put a little guidance in there for uh, picking those numbers quickly. LodgeCon56 asks, what was each member of the design team's most difficult uh, part to design for Pathfinder 2nd Edition, and how did you overcome it? That's a lightning run question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I drank those memories away. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say that implementing spell changes from all the playtesters was the most difficult part to design because of the fact that there were so many comments that you guys wrote all throughout um, some of the free response to the spell survey and in the spell survey and that I overcame it by working on Christmas. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I uh, uh, decided that when we were uh, going from the playtest to the final that I would take a crack at rewriting chapter one. The kind of introduction to the game. And um, we knew that the playtest chapter one wasn't working the right way. Too many people were having problems getting into the game because the first chapter was throwing them for a loop. It wasn't introducing things in the right order. It was spending too much time talking about things that it didn't need to talk about before getting to kind of the fun and the immersion. So, you know, it, uh, like one of the hardest things I did was I had to write a piece of fiction. That's not normally something that I do uh, in my day job. And I hemmed and hawed over that for like three weeks, uh, rewriting that chunk of text many times to make it a fun little piece of narrative to draw you into the world before I start explaining to you what armor class is. <coughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that it, it just, <laughs> I overcame that by just doing it over and over and over again. So Iterate until it uh, works. Yeah. Uh, mine is probably some of the kind of economy stuff, like, uh, uh, making money with skills and crafting things and uh, item drops and how much items should cost and that kind of stuff um, and a lot of, because there's so much of that that is uh, interrelated and big picture um, so a lot of I think the the most essential thing there was kind of coming up with like all right how much is downtime worth um, and how much how uh, valuable should that be compared to going on an adventure because we know we don't want it to be as valuable. Uh, but how strong should it be? So once you get that baseline in, then you can kind of figure out uh, all the other stuff built around that. Yeah, you really don't want the party being like, yeah, we could go fight that dragon, or I could yeah. just continue making these shoes. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and the, the hardest part really is like that that stuff is all really boring to, to construct. Yeah. Uh, so it was like, how do we make this simple enough that people can engage with it this much and it takes this much of their brain space and gives them the satisfaction they want without making them do a whole bunch of work that they don't enjoy. Instead, we do that. Probably making sure all those critters fit in the best area. <laughs> <laughs> that was a wrangle. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, from Germany, Templar's Knight asks, do melee characters still depend on magic items at the mid-levels and the end game more so than, uh, than spellcasters? I mean, magic weapons, yes, but like magic items, no, because scrolls and staves and wands and all that are still going to be, those are going to be important for the casters. Yeah, I, I think for the, you know, the, the, the fighter and the barbarian and whatnot, yeah, they're going to be looking for the, the powerful magic weapons and magic armors and things. But, you know, when you see how, how awesome staves are, the, the spellcasters are going to be like, where can I get my, my hands on a staff or two? Um, you know, where can I get some good wands and things like that? It, it's just different, right? I think, you know, that was that was like one of the parts uh, when we were doing the playtest where we, uh, or before we did the playtest, where uh, we had the idea for what would become talismans. They were called trinkets then. We, we changed the name because trinket's silly. Uh, so those they're called talismans now. And uh, But the, the entire thought behind them was, well, when you get or, uh, consumable treasure, it's scrolls and potions and wands. 
Well, the fighter, you know, half the group only cares about the potions. And even then, they're, they're not going to care about half of those. So they don't really have any reason to care much about consumable items. They can't use scrolls. They can't use wands. So trinkets were kind of like the, the answer for, well, the other classes now get items that are <coughs> consumable. They do something cool, and then they're gone. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, then, and then the flip side was like, let's make staves cheap enough that people can buy them. Yeah. Or make them. <laughs> yeah. And, and I want, use them. <laughs> I want to circle around. They were both saying, well, weapons, sure. And you guys in the playtest told us about weapons. You said you had a lot of fun getting magic weapons for the most part. Maybe be a little bit less essential, and your character provides more of the damage and the output. And we heard you, and we did that. But to circle back around to the first philosophy thing I said about object oriented design, things that you can take out and put in, if you don't want the magic weapons and armor to be a part of your fighters because you're a low magic game that's super easy to remove and we will pro be providing that um, for you in the game mastery guide as well so you'll have it early and you can probably maybe come up with it on your own before that um, I was uh, just looking at all the questions on Twitch and trying to summarize some of them. Some of the questions are very much rules-oriented and specifics, and uh, that's a little less philosophy, so those are kind of other panels. But there, there was a general appreciation of, of the new way in which characters are created, um, specifically noticing that sort of point by is no longer really part of the core process. Do you have any philosophical statements about the direction that you moved in in second edition for character creation and what, what drove you? Um. Especially I guess con contrasting from what first edition right was. Uh, less pseudoscience, uh, more creating uh, the semblance of a person. Well, yeah. and and also yeah. one of the big things we wanted was that it kind of felt like a person was was being created. So you're born, you choose your ancestry, and that's going to set some of your uh, ability uh, <laughs> scores. Then you have your background, which is everything you did until you became an adventurer, and that creates some more. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you get to your class, and that's going to kind of finish out that progression. And each step of that it tells a bit of a story about you, because mm -hmm. this is the heritage I'm from, and then this is uh, what I did in my formative years, and then I get into my class. You can have so many different combinations of those to create such a wide variety of, of themes for your character. You learn so much about your character just by the time yeah, you're done. Just through the process. Yeah, we didn't want you to just sit down and pick ability scores and then get halfway through their character process and be like, oh wait, no, my wisdom's way too low for me to actually have the character I want. Instead, the guiding choices of what directions you were taking it help you make those choices in an informed way as you go along. I, I think one of the interesting side effects of, of I wouldn't say it was a side effect, uh, interesting uh, benefits of the way that we do that is that if you did want to play a game of like, well, we're just you know town bumpkins, we're not adventurers, you could just pick your ancestry and your background and, and run. You wouldn't be good at anything, but you could <laughs> try that, right? And, and then you could start picking up pieces of a class until eventually everyone was fully first level and then you're off to you the races. You could be a zero level character. Yeah. Zero for plus trained for your proficiency. Yeah, exactly. You're yeah, only yeah. good at what your background said, so you better... <laughs> yeah, you, you, you're, you're, you're trained right in background. your background. Yeah, you might even start giving them a skill choice or two based on int and things like that, right? So, so nice. Well, so they, have nice. A, they, have, <laughs> but they have an intelligence, yeah, right. right? So yeah, at least so, get their Yeah. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you all for attending. I want to thank everybody on Twitch for watching. And uh, I think this is our last Pathfinder panel that here is, at PaizoCon 2019. So uh, remember, uh, the game drops August 1st. We will be at Gen Con showing it off. You'll be able to pick it up there. And we will be excited to tell you all about it in the coming months, uh, or in the coming couple months, uh, on blogs, on Twitch, 
You'll be able to find out a lot more about this game as we go forward from this point onward. Thank you for coming, everybody. Bye, See you everyone. next time. Bye, bye, bye.